and Hound podcast. Hello and welcome to the Horse and Hound podcast, supported this week by Horse First. I'm Pippa Room, magazine editor here at Horse and Hound. Well, by the time you listen to this, I will be out in the USA covering Maryland Five Star, so I hope you'll be following our coverage from there and cheering on your favourites. Our interview this week is with Bobby Upton, who talks about juggling university with eventing, her move to being a full-time event rider, and her up and down year at Five Star. I think it's quite rare to be able to look back on your badminton debut and have genuinely had a 99.9% perfect round. So I think time has allowed me to be more proud of that. I'll then be handing over to the rest of the Horse and Hound team to look back at last week's Horse of the Year show and review the rest of the week's news. Finally, veterinary equine behaviourist Dr Gemma Pearson gives an introduction to her work. There's a big crossover between being an equine behaviourist and training in horses. So certain aspects may come under a riding instructor, but sometimes the problems don't seem to be resolving very easily. And that's where we may need to get an equine behaviourist involved. So we've lots to get through this week. Pull down your stirrups and let's get started. So our interview today is with a former junior European eventing champion who completed her first badminton and her first burley this year with a top 15 finish at the latter event. And it is, of course, Bubby Upton. Hi, Bubby. Welcome to the Horse and Hound podcast. Hello. Thank you very much for having me. I'm very excited um, yeah, to be on here for the first time. So thank you. No problem. It's great to speak with you. And I feel like it's overdue, really, that we're uh, catching up with you. And so much has happened to you sort of in the past year. I can't believe it's only a year since you rode in your first five star and finished 12th at Poe last autumn on Cola. But I think we should start by talking about the transition that you've made over this year from being a student who was also riding at a high level to being a full time event rider. And for those who are less familiar with your story, could you just fill us in on sort of where you were at uni and how you you were juggling that for, for that time while you were studying? Yeah, so um, I've been for the past four years studying up at Edinburgh University. My home is just outside Newmarket. So kind of for the last four years, it's been nonstop commuting back and forth. I was very lucky that EasyJet were um, regular flyers from Stansted to Edinburgh, which by the end of it, I was doing kind of door to door in three and a half hours, which was, you know, pretty incredible considering, yeah, Edinburgh and Newmarket are very far away. And to a lot of people, I think they thought I was completely mad. And I probably was. Um, But I think it made sense in, in the fact that I was able to work for kind of two hours of that journey because I was on a plane or a tram um, um, traveling to the airport. So any other university within within the vicinity um, that I wanted to go to kind of it it wouldn't wouldn't have worked. So yeah, I was flying back and forth twice a week so that I could ride my horses four times a week every week. So I rode them before lectures very early in the morning, yeah, before flying up to lectures and then back home and riding them until very late hours after lectures. So, um, yeah, it was a bit of a, a crazy four years, particularly this last year, because it was my final year and I was on the verge of a first and being the competitive person that I am, I was pretty, uh, yeah, 
stubborn in the fact that I was very determined to get the first. And so it was a big relief when I did because it made all the hours worth it. But it, I definitely did put myself through a fair bit of uh, hell <laughs> to get there. And I think only now when it's all calmed down a bit, do I realize actually how much of a, yeah, undoable task it was. But uh, I'm very, very proud of uh, what I achieved. That is for sure, yeah. Yeah, well, definitely well done on that first. That's something I did not achieve in my university career. And I also wasn't trying to be a five-star event rider at the same time. So so good work on that. And so you graduated this <laughs> summer. You've been riding full-time since then. And how has it been sort of settling into, I guess, what most of us would call the more normal pattern of the life of an event rider and not trying to do do a whole degree on the, on, I'm not sure which was on the side, but uh, how has it been just being an event rider and being focused on the horses? Well, it's been very, very different. That is for sure. I'm not used to having so much time on my hands. Um, you know, I go to an event now and if it's a big one, you know, like Burnley or Blenheim with one horse, I am just there like twiddling my thumbs a bit. Like I don't really know what to do because I'm so used to uh, in the past always having university work, dissertations and all of that to be doing whilst I was at an event. So I've kind of found myself um, finding stuff to do. Like I pretty much always drive back and forth from an event to home to ride all my other horses now. And um, so I'm kind of a bit of a, yeah, I, I don't really like not doing a lot. So although I have a lot more time on the hands, I have uh, done a pretty good job at filling it quite quickly. <laughs> <laughs> well done. And this feels like it's been a real sort of 12 months for you of gaining experience at Five Star and ups and downs along the way. And um, Cola, of course, is the horse that you've been in the spotlight with the most. And I know is, is very special to you. Tell us about him. How long have you had him and what's he like? Yeah, so I've had Cola since he was six. So that's six years now. Um, we've been on an extraordinary journey together. Um, he means the world to me as to all my horses, particularly, you know, him when he's made, you know, childhood dreams become a reality. Um, they always mean that extra bit more, particularly when, you know, you only bought them as a junior young rider kind of horse. So for him to keep going up through the levels is extremely, yeah, special. And, um, and I feel very lucky to have found him as a six year old and for him to gone that far, but he is, uh, he's a hilarious horse. Um, he's got a lot of character. He definitely knows his people that he likes and he makes it very clear if he doesn't like you, uh, pulls very angry faces and will, yeah, snap his teeth at you if he, if he wants to get you out of his home. So, um, he, he tells us, he very quickly tells us if he likes you members of staff or doesn't. So he's a great, um, he's a great judge of character. Um, but yeah, we all love him so much. We know his kind of, his ways, how to keep him sweet and happy. And um, when he was a young horse, he was seriously spooky. Um, there's a few cross-country videos where I was kind of kicking and from 10 strides out because he didn't want to go near them. So he's come a long way. I've learned how to manage him to, in order to have him, you know, in tip-top shape mentally and physically for the, um, for the top events. But yeah, he's a fantastic horse and fingers crossed the best is still yet to come. Yeah, and he's still quite a young horse, considering how much you've packed in with sort of young rider team, golden individual, silver, and then already five five starts starts with him. And of course, you went to your first badminton in the spring this year, so nearly the dream, but had that heartbreaking twenty penalties at the last cross country fence, and obviously 
you know, I, I remember speaking to you immediately after that and you said you were just absolutely gutted and, and could hardly put into words what had happened. But you've got a little bit of distance from that now. And and, and how do you sort of reflect back on that with a, a sort of five, five six months of, of time on that experience? Well, I mean, it obviously gets easier to talk about, but I think, yeah, it'll forever be a bit of a, um, yeah, gut-wrenching moment whenever anyone brings it up um I think I hope soon people will, will stop talking about it but I think it's quite a um a relatively high profile uh, incident I guess because it was you know such an incredible round and and for that to happen the last fence I guess it was quite uncharacteristic and you don't really see it very often so I um I think with time I've been able to look back on badminton and feel a lot more proud than I initially was kind of quite quickly after badminton I I didn't really take many positives from it I thought it was just a massive mistake and I didn't really have a chance to actually analyze quite how incredible it was bearing in mind every single other fence bar that one I wouldn't change so I think it's quite rare to be able to look back on your badminton debut and have genuinely had a 99.9% perfect round so I think time has allowed me to be more proud of that um whereas yeah straight after the straight after badminton you know that definitely wasn't the case I'm my biggest critic and very hard on myself so yeah it was tough and then kind of lamulin on the top of that was you know an even harder one to swallow so um yeah it doesn't get easier it um it is you know still very difficult to digest but I guess you have to learn how to take the good things from it and learn and I guess it's all part of hopefully shaping me into the champion that I want to be yeah for sure and and we will you touched on Lemoulin there and we'll come back to that but I think you also have to remember that of course badminton eventing is a three-phase competition and you know you did a very decent dressage test just just poking over the 30 mark and 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 show jumped clear on the jumping side of badminton so there were a lot of positives to take out of that and presumably a lot of learnings that you were then able to put into the 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 really strong result that you had at Burley in the autumn uh, where you finished 14th yeah, so I think with um, kind of the dressage is still, you know, coming. I was disappointed with my test at badminton because I overworked him. I thought he was going to light up a bit with the atmosphere, but I quickly realised that he doesn't give a fly monkeys about atmospheres, which he never has in the past. But I thought, you know, he had never seen an atmosphere like like there was at badminton. And it's a real rarity to have that kind of just the level of the crowds. We don't have it anywhere else apart from at Burley. So I took that, I learned from it at Burley and he did a, you know, his test was so much better at Burley. So there's still a lot to come. The changes still need work. They've come a long way, but in the season, it's quite hard to kind of try and unravel them. So hopefully over the winter, they will come out next year with them kind of sorted. And yeah, I'm unbelievably excited about the work that he's showing there. And then to cross country, I think for me, it was kind of only a, a month or so into the run up to Burley that I was able to start analysing my round for badminton and I actually watched my round apart from the last fence um, before I went cross country at Burley because the ride he gave me was was dreamy. Um, he's an absolute cross country machine. I obviously had to ride the Burley track very differently to badminton because of the, it was such an unknown with the terrain. On paper, he is not blood really at all. He's about 40% blood and... So Burley technically shouldn't suit him. He doesn't really fit that mold of the Burley type that everyone talks about. But 
I had so much belief in him and we know each other inside out. He always digs deep for me. So I was kind of relying on that, but I set off a bit slower from Burley and just rode it like I've ridden every other track on him, but just gave the last fence that extra bit of time and respect. But I think badminton gave me a lot of confidence that he could do the technicality side of it. It was, yeah, simply a question of whether he was fit enough and, you know, could endure those hills. And I think he showed that he definitely can. And he, yeah, is a very, very versatile event horse. Yeah, he's such a, he's kind of a little, a little light horse and he looks like a very quick and, and clever horse to ride. Is that how he feels when you're sitting on him? Yeah, he's unbelievably clever with his footwork. Um, he's got electric knees. They kind of slap him in the, in the chin. Um, but he's actually not particularly quick. Like his top speed isn't fast. I think the reason why he is so fast cross country and why he's made the time, you know, so many times at that top level is because of that partnership we have. I trust him inside out. I don't really ever take a pull on the reins because he's not a strong horse. And that's why he's so fast. I can shave off seconds, you know, by angling across fences and things like that. But his actual top speed is not very fast. He's just a fighter and yeah, time and time again, he's fought for me and um, I'm, you know, already missing that feeling that he gives me cross country. And sadly for him, Burley took a fair bit out of him. Um, he was a bit sore afterwards. And I think that kind of was the, you know, the reason why he jumped like he did on the Sunday, because he is a phenomenal jumper and came out obviously at badminton and jumped, you know, an immaculate clearing. So it was obviously a shame. It feels like this whole year has been a bit, the wrong way round. He should have, obviously, we would have loved the clear at Burnley when it mattered and, you know, the fences down at Badminton when it didn't. But, you know, that's the sport and you've got to learn to take it. And, um, but yeah, I mean, it's all very positive and exciting for the future. And I just hope that one day it can all come together for him. Yeah, it feels like if you could put together your best five-star performances across all the different events in the past year, you would have won a five-star. Um, but yeah. uh, <laughs> you are very young. I'm sure that day is going to come. How old are you, Bobby? Remind our listeners. 23. Yeah. So that uh, that that five-star win is uh, is is there's there's plenty of time. Although I know you're uh, super ambitious to get going in that in that senior career really quickly. But your five-star year isn't even over yet because you've still got Poe to go with Cannavaro. He is your Bicton under 25 winner from last year who led the dressage at Le Moulin in June had a full cross country um, but obviously come back from that and, and and pushing on to Poe now. Tell us a bit about him. Yeah, so he's um he's got quite an interesting story behind him. We bought him as a show jumper um back in 2016 and he had done a couple of novices and he was a real we used to call him Fat Joey um because he was a real little chunky monkey. I never ever thought that he would have done what he's done. Um he's a horse that has time and time again exceeded all expectations and I've never been more happy to be proved wrong than I have by him. I've been pretty open about the fact that, you know, I very nearly, um, yeah, sold him and gave up on him in the sense of I didn't think he would make the time ever four star because he's got 20% blood on paper and he doesn't ride, you know, any bit more than that in the sense of he's an unbelievable show jumper and I've had to really learn how to adapt my riding on him cross country to ensure that I kind of don't tire him out any more than I need to so because the more you pull the higher he goes so I've had to learn to be brave on him cross country and 
yeah, really just adapt my style to be less controlling so that we can save us energy as much as possible. And I think victim was a real turning point with him. I um, remember when I walked the course, I very nearly, well, I tried to switch him into the four star short, but I couldn't. But um, it was so unsuited to him with the hills and and all of that. But I just kind of um, let him go in his own rhythm and he was amazing. And I think that is, that was the point that I realized, right, okay, well, maybe this, you know, I need to take him a lot more seriously for the five, for the top end of the sport with five stars than, than I ever have. And I think the reason why he's done what he's done and achieved what he has is simply because of the size of his heart. He's got a heart of pure gold and he is, all he ever wants to do is please. And um, yeah, he's the most kind and adorable horse you'll ever have and yeah very very lucky to partner him and just hope that again he gets the result he deserves at Poe because he's been knocking at the door and I've you know let him down last year at Poe Lemoulin also you know was a combination of things but fundamentally it was my fault so uh yeah that's another uh, was another very very tough pill to swallow this year but I really hope that um he'll be ready for Poe he hasn't had the ideal run-up because he um Hurt himself in his fall at the Moulin, but um, yeah, fingers crossed our partnership will shine through. Yeah, I really remember that turnaround at, at Bicton being there at that event and speaking to you through the competition. And as you say, you actually tried to swap him out of that class at the, the beginning of the week and then went on to win it, which is a, a pretty amazing story. So we'll really look forward to seeing how he goes at Poe in a couple of weeks' time. And you've also got some horses that you've taken on relatively recently still who were previously ridden by Chris Burton, including Jefferson 18, who was third at Blenheim just a couple of weeks ago in the four-star long. How has it been taking on those more experienced horses because you know you're a rider who who to your credit has produced horses sort of from the beginning of their careers and, and built partnerships with them what's it been like to take on horses that are already sort of competing at a high level well I mean you know first and foremost the opportunities that uh, Dr Jeffrey Guy and Kate Guy have given me I am you know eternally grateful for I feel unbelievably privileged to be riding under their banner of Chellington Equestrian and yeah, to be given opportunities like this to ride horses of that caliber is what we dream of. Um, but yeah, it's very different to producing the horses like I have done throughout my career from the bottom to the top, knowing them inside out and then being molded to your style and, and your way of doing things. So it's taken a, a bit of time. and um, But I think, you know, that's all part of, you know, being, you know, the best rider in the world of what, you know, the best riders in the world are able to do both. You know, they can take on rides ridden by other people and they can produce them to the top as well. So it's been really good for me. I've absolutely loved it. Um, but yeah, it's been challenging. Um, but for Jefferson to get their result at Blenheim was was absolutely fantastic. He's a phenomenal horse. Um, I said it in an interview, you know, he trots like a dressage horse. He gallops like a thoroughbred and he jumps like a jumper so um he's got it all um he just has always lacked a bit of confidence um so it was fantastic that um he believed in himself that weekend as much as we've all always believed in him yeah wonderful and tell us a bit about what the winter will look like for you Bubby are some of your horses already out on holiday when do they come in presumably Cannavaro will get a holiday after Poe what what does that sort of look like in terms of what your what happens in your yard over the next couple of months so it's all a bit different, to be honest. Cola went straight out on holiday after Burley and Jefferson did the same after Blenheim. The young horses, I've kind of kept ticking 
ticking along now. They're going to then go out on holiday when I go to Po. Um, so kind of make the most of the time that I'm still riding Cannavaro and it kind of makes sense to keep the younger horses up now as well. So then they'll pretty much all go out on holiday um, from Po onwards for kind of four or five, six weeks. It completely depends on the horse. I kind of adapt the holidays to the horse. The older horses have slightly less holiday and then come and work a bit and then have, you know, a bit more holiday, whereas the young horses go out for, yeah, four, five, six weeks and just just chill and um, think about how to be a grown-up grown up horse. But for me, I'm very exciting moving yards in, in the new year. Um, it was meant to be in November, but it kind of always gets pushed back uh, as, you know, things are a bit different in current times. Um, but, yeah, so there's been kind of an old stud being redeveloped which is you know a fantastic opportunity for me so I'm really excited to move in there so I'll be kind of I've been overseeing the whole thing for the last year so that will kind of be my main focus and you know trying to find some future stars going out abroad that's kind of what my um winter involves it's it's strange it's my first winter in in 10 years that I haven't well you know my whole life (laughs) that I haven't had yeah academic studies to be doing so I'm gonna enjoy enjoy the downtime that is for sure <laughs> and is your new yard is that sort of on the same property as your current yard or nearby or are you making a move around the country no it's nearby it's just down the road and um, it used to be a stud and but it's become a pretty run down stud um so it just had a complete kind of makeover and um And yeah, so I'm going to move into there, which is really exciting. So now kind of room to expand and hopefully grow the team and yeah, go on to achieve bigger and better things. Um, Well, you kind of know what I'm like. I'm always wanting more, striving for better. And hopefully in the new facilities, um, yeah, it will allow a bigger bigger team. And yeah, I'm really excited to see what the future holds, kind of see where I am this time next year and the growth that hopefully my career will have, um, would have achieved. Yeah. Oh, well, it sounds really exciting. We want to see pictures of the new yard. Make sure you post them on post them on social media once you've moved in. But you touched there on that sort of motivation and drive that you've shown all the way through your career. Where does that come from? Is that something you've always had as part of your personality? Is it something that runs through the rest of your family? How, how, how have you become that very ambitious person that we see? It's quite funny, actually. Someone asked me that exact question the other day who was um, staying at home and I think, so for me, I'm the youngest child and there's a really interesting statistic about being the youngest that that is, I think, a high percentage of top athletes are the youngest child because you've always had to be better to be included in the game or, you know, run faster to keep up and all that kind of stuff. So I think that's definitely a part of it because there's five of us in the family. So I was always left out when they played tennis or because I wasn't good enough or that kind of thing. So I think that's definitely a part of it. Uh, but I think I've, I think anyone who's known me since I was young will say that I've always been ultra, ultra competitive. I hate losing and I've had to learn, obviously, how to take the positives out of it and, you know, shape them into helping me be better in the future. But yeah, I, I hold my hands up now and say when I was younger, I was a fairly poor loser, um, which is a very unattractive um, trait to have. So that was kind of yeah, shaken out of me pretty fast, but um, but yeah, it's always been there. Um, I'd say it probably comes from my dad. He's a he's you know a real inspiration to me. He's worked so unbelievably hard, and 
Um, yeah, he's someone that I look up to in terms of, you know, leaving no stone unturned and achieving what he has achieved. You know, I want to do the same in, in my, um, you know, different chosen path. Yeah. Well, that's really interesting. I think I'm going to blame the fact I'm the oldest child on the fact I'm uh, not flying around five stars. Well, I was going to say even now when I was in my early 20s, uh, never going to fly around a five star, I don't think. But it's great, <laughs> to, it's great to talk to you, Bubby. Final question. Do you already sort of have a plan in mind for your for your sort of big boys and five stars in the spring next year? Do you know what that might look like? Or are you waiting till, till this year's over to, to make a plan? Knowing you, I imagine you already have an idea of what it might look like. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. I'm already kind of looking ahead to next year. But um, I think for Cannavaro, um, it will completely depend on how he, hopefully, we can eventually get around the get around the five-star trip because he's never managed to do that yet, um, you know, not through his fault. So I need to see how he copes with the length of a five-star to then make a plan as to whether he will go to badminton or whether we will um, reroute again, try again at the Moulin next year. Um, but yeah, that completely depends on how he goes round Poe this year because it's still a big unknown on how he copes with the distance. Um, Cola will definitely try again for Babington and Burley. And um, yeah, hopefully Babington get that dream finish, which was in touching distance. And then Burley see, yeah, if he's come on, hopefully he would have come on a long way in terms of, I think, going round Burley once. They then come on so much from it. So um yeah, fingers crossed, we'll um, get that final day kind of even better um, from him having done the trip once already before. Um, and then Magic Roundabout, we'll hopefully do Bramham under 25s and then tackle his first five-star at Burley, which I'm yeah really excited for if it happens. Obviously, it's a long way away because he's a really, really blood horse and I can imagine him absolutely loving the track that that you kind of face at Burley. And then um, I think Jefferson will hopefully step up to five-star as well. And then I've got some others as well who will hopefully have some exciting plans as well. So yeah, it's looking really exciting. And fingers crossed, um, yeah, 2023, can we can miss out the, the lows and and just ride the highs. <laughs> well, it's great to talk to you, Bubby, and uh, get a bit of a, a debrief on, on 2022, although it's not quite over yet, and uh, and look ahead a little bit into the winter and next year. Thank you so much for joining us today. Pleasure. I've loved it. Thank you so much for having me. This week's Horse and Ham podcast is supported by Horse First. Horse First offers an advanced and effective range of supplements formulated with the highest levels of active ingredients to keep your horse in the very best of health. Whether you're looking for a calmer horse, stronger hooves or supple joints, Horse First has the answer. Hi, I'm Jennifer Donald, show jumping editor at Horse and Hound, and I'm joined now by my colleagues Alex Robinson and Eleanor Jones, who have just returned from a mega busy week at Horse of the Year show, covering the showing and jumping classes, respectively. Hi, Alex and Elle. Morning. Hi. Well, uh, Horse of the Year show is always one of the highlights of the equestrian calendar, and you've both enjoyed five days of fantastic competition in Birmingham. Uh, Alex, I'll come to you first. Um, a successful show, do you think? What was the buzz in the showing ring this year? 
Yeah, I mean, there's always a lot of anticipation ahead of Hoys for, for the showing community. And this year, particularly, obviously last year, it was kind of just coming out of the pandemic. So things were a bit unsure. So everyone was really keen this year to get back to the normal format. And yeah, it was absolutely brilliant there was so much positivity around the rings everyone was keen to be there and I think a lot of people left feeling very motivated for next season there were some lovely horses and ponies both um a few season campaigners there and as well as a lot of new faces so it was a really nice mix at the top of the lineups and yeah just some real real quality throughout the classes brilliant and Elle what about you any sort of particular um highlights in the in the jumping ring what was the buzz over that side I would say really pretty much as Alex said above was exactly the same you know there were newcomers there were old hands everyone was having a lovely time the the stands were packed just about throughout the atmosphere everyone that we spoke to said what a great atmosphere it was and and how good to it yeah I mean it's a real thriving show and everyone seemed to have a great time good to be back brilliant yeah (laughs) I have to say I think one of my favorite winners of the week was um, Shane Breen winning the leading show jumper of the year on Sunday with the 10 year old stallion quick star Kavek and it was uh, it's a horse that he's always thought a lot of and it was one of the just a brilliant performance the jump off in particular was exceptional and uh, yeah he's uh, definitely one to look out for next year it was a brilliant performance but uh, I think the only downside of that was that he beat John Whitaker and I think a lot mm-hmm. of people really wanted to see John Whitaker win but uh, great performances from them all wasn't it yeah I have to say I, I did tip Shane before the Grand Prix and should have put my money money where my <laughs> mouth was yeah but um but John John, John was just superb all week. Um, he's just absolutely at the top of his game and we had a good chat with him there as well. Um, and there were some real standouts. I think Jessica Burke coming to her first toys and walking away with three international wins was just jaw-dropping. Oh, brilliant, isn't it? I mean, to do that on your first appearance is just fantastic. And she, and yeah, it was it was outstanding and that mare is, is superb as well. Um, I think one of the best sporting moments had to be the, the new jump off on the uh, one of the first couple of days obviously in the national classes and that was Mark went to Mark Edwards and, and Royal Tail who is by his uh, stalwart his very very amazing ride Montrose Tail but in terms of jump offs I mean they were scorching round and he finished on 31.82 and then Nicole Pavitt was giving it a good go and she finished on 31.83 and it was oh it was it was superb real top class sport brilliant it always is I mean it's always thrilling jump offs in there I don't know how they do it the pressure and as you say the <laughs> atmosphere in there you you know there's so many people in there watching you as well it's, um, oh, it's fantastic sport. and then they all say the bit where they you know they go for their lap of honor and they're playing the music and they gallop up the center line in the spotlight yeah. it just yeah <laughs> makes you goosebumps one day Eleanor one day yeah. be you. <laughs> um, and Alex what about you were there any particular winners in the showing ring that really stood out for you yeah, I mean, I loved watching the Mountain Morning classes. Um, Native ponies do have my heart. And two mm-hmm. of the top champions were two five-year-olds, actually. So the overall Mountain Morland champion uh, was a five-year-old Dale Stallion. The championship was a real absolute feast for the eyes 22 ponies were came into the international arena on thursday's um on in thursday's evening performance and yeah champion of the 
of the breeds was um, Grisburn Major. Yeah, just a five-year-old. He was absolutely gorgeous under the spotlight. He really kind of came oh, wow. together. And yeah, it was his first hoys. He was ridden by his owner, um, Joe Watson, who owns him with his partner, Rob McIver. And they bought him as a as a kind of a wild three-year-old from the stud. They just kind of picked him out and, and they've come to hoys on the first attempt and um and one and also in the M&M working on pony another five-year-old um first time I won it this was the Welsh section C Joyton Sunshine with his 12-year-old rider Ella and they um yeah they won the 133 class and yeah went through the card and took that took the championship in the in the evening performance which was which was lovely um yeah but two two young ponies and I mean so much more to give but um really nice to see them you know coming coming through and you know having their moment even despite being so young wow I'm gonna say for a young horse or pony to come into that kind of environment I mean that takes some doing doesn't yeah, it yeah I think some of them just have the have the brains for it and you know they've they just um on the day they were you know they shone but it, it was really nice to to see them and we've mentioned the Whitakers. Um, what, like I think it was just brilliant to to see so many Whitakers. I think that was one of my standout moments. Seeing you know the whole family in action, and we enjoyed them jumping to to great success across the week. Were there any other sort of standout moments for you, Alex, in the showing ring that uh, stood out for you? Yeah, definitely. There were. I mean, there were so many, but probably one of the most emotional wins was was on the first day of the show on on Wednesday when Katie Jerem Hunnable took the SEIB Racehorse to Riding Horse Championship with the King's first receiver, who was um, bred by the late Queen Elizabeth II. And yeah, it was. I mean, again, just a five-year-old, so really kind of um, defying the odds. But Katie, when she left the ring, she was in tears, and she, oh, I just, gosh. she just said um, when she first began riding for her majesty 20 years ago all she said that she wanted to do was win hoys with a homebred and, and katie's finally done it for her and oh katie's had four runner-up positions at hoys for the, for the queen and yeah she finally did it on this really really lovely horse who he gave a lovely account for himself in the supreme as well i thought he might have you know inched it but um yeah the supreme on sunday the horse title went to um the very deserving viewpoint who is owned by jill day and written by robert walker um earlier in the week he took his fourth hunter championship and yeah i think rob after after that championship and the head of the supreme he said he was very you know unsure about bringing the horse to the show because he was supreme last year and he's won the royal international supreme this year he's a four-time windsor champion and i just remember i just remember rob in the collector ring saying oh i'm i'm so glad he's won this title and we'll see what happens on sunday in the supreme um wow. and yeah he, the horse actually won the supreme and and retired from the ring and yeah rob kind of he was called forward had his sash did a lap of honor and then dismounted and crossed his stirrups and led um viewpoint down the center line one oh. last time and it was yeah that was that was probably the highlight of the show for for a lot of people and you yeah, know what a way for that horse to bow out yeah oh gosh i'm getting goosebumps hearing about yeah. all that it's just uh, really emotional isn't it, was it? lovely um, oh. but there were so many winners um supreme pony noble peppermint little one three three centimeter worker she was gorgeous and supreme with a, a 10 year old jockey mm -hmm. so many lovely winners um yeah can't there was not a bad word to say about any of them Oh, wow. And Elle, any other winners in the jumping ring that, um, or any other standout moments in the jumping ring that caught your eye? I agree on the Whitakers. There was a, mo on the Friday morning, I think we, we got about nine of them lined up for a picture in the <laughs> ring. And William Whitaker said that was like herding cats sort of trying to get them <laughs> <Yes. on there. laughs> 
Uh, <laughs> I'm very impressed. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And uh, and then there was it was lovely actually on the last night when they um, named the the late Queen their Equestrian of the Year and they had a presentation brought in the great barber's shop and some of her other horses and ponies into the ring, which was lovely. Um, and actually, one thing that always makes me want to cry is when they read the poem at the end and they oh, read the horse. Oh, the ode to the horse. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh my goodness. Um, yeah. It was Nick Nick Brooks Ward this year, wasn't it? He was um, he did it with the um, the heavy horse in the middle of the oh, ring. Oh, it just, just makes me want to cry. Oh, it's <laughs> really special. Um, wow. Well, an emotional show, a great show all round, I think. And um, you can read all about it in this week's issue of the magazine, which is in the shops on Thursday, 13th of October, with uh, lots of added insight from leading show jumper Ollie Fletcher and first time Hoy's judge Magnus Nicholson. Eleanor, Alex, thank you very much. And Alex, it's over to you for the news. Yep. Thank you, Jen. So it was great to catch up with all the news from the from the Horse of the Year show. And I'm actually joined now by two of our news team members. I'll be speaking to Lucy Elder in a second. But right now I'm joined by Becky Murray. Hi, Becky. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. Um, a bit gutted I wasn't at Hoy's, but um, no, just getting on with things up in Scotland. Lovely. And um, so a bit, another busy week in news. Which story stood out for you this week? Yes, well, it's an interesting one that's cropped up. Um, I've been speaking to a bereavement charity called Widowed and Young, and they support people aged 50 and under who have lost a partner. And this year, they actually set up a horse-related subgroup um, following a rise in members who have been left horses to look after when their partners have died, but they're perhaps not necessarily horsey themselves. And this group offers a, a safe space for these people to help and learn from each other and get that support. And I think what was interesting is, you know, the charity's chair, Joe Sedley-Burke, pointed out that obviously losing a partner is an awful thing to go through. But when you then add in horses and that partner that's been left behind may find themselves in a role they didn't actually have before. Obviously, they're all, that's always going to be a, a really difficult conversation to have and something that we probably don't want to think about. But why do people need to start considering what happens to the horses when, you know, they are gone? Well, there's a couple of obvious reasons. You know, it's making sure your horse will be cared for after you're gone. But then it's also about providing that peace of mind for your family and also that peace of mind for yourself that mm. should something happen, there are arrangements in place. And that can be whether it's keeping a list or a letter or the more formal arrangement of having your will in place. Mm. But it's just making sure people are aware of your wishes. And um, I hear the Blue Cross runs a service which can help horse riders and owners kind of navigate this topic. Can you tell, tell us a little bit about what, what this service offers? Yes, the Blue Cross run Pet Peace of Mind. Now, this is a free service where people can apply to register their horses. Um, it also covers small animals too, cats and dogs and everything. And basically, if you pass away, then the charity will liaise with your next of kin or family and they will come and collect your horse and they will find them a new home. And I think this really is a brilliant thing that people should consider signing up to if they can. Mm. I certainly am looking at signing up my own horses because I've got a non-horsey partner. And for me personally, it's not something I'd want him to have to deal with later mm. down the line. I think these conversations can be uncomfortable, but they are certainly important for us to have. Mm. 
Well, thank you so much for that, Becky. And Lucy is back with us now, and she's been working on a story about British para dressage. Lucy, what's the general gist of the story here? So I was really kind of taking a look, you know, towards the end of the season, we've had the World Championships this year, it's actually just been big international at Kiso, uh, where mm-hmm. British para dressage is at the moment, um, how competitive the rest of the world is mm. um and looking looking ahead really to paris 2024 we know qualifications in the bag but as we're looking ahead towards uh, performing there and medals uh, what kind of is on the cards for the next couple of years and how does britain actually push forward with this it's a good question really um so obviously britain's been a trailblazer in para sport um, and of course there were some fantastic performances out in Herning we brought home seven medals uh, but at the same time that it is worth noting that it was the first time we finished off the podium as a team so I spoke to quite a few people I spoke to Georgina Sharples who is British Equestrians para dressage performance manager I spoke mm-hmm. to Natasha Baker I spoke to Sophie Christensen and Erin Orford as well to kind of get a picture about what what they think is is the way forwards what is the plan um and what the future kind of holds and it's bright i think is is the first place to start um summing up a few of the points that they made um firstly horsepower is critical um Mm -hmm. as is increasing and nurturing rider talent Uh, another key point that came up quite a lot was that horses and riders need greater exposure to those busy show environments as they progress through their education and their development so that they're not coming to a championship or even a big c um, international where it's a bit of a surprise so kind of progressing that through some of the the bigger shows that national shows that we see uh, in able-bodied sport in dressage and how it can kind of little be a little bit more linked um, between able-bodied and the para calendars. Um, another big point that came up was, you know, sourcing and affording the horsepower needed, uh, how to avoid the sport becoming elitist. Um, and also what really came across was that a greater understanding in the wider equine marketplace is needed of the qualities that para horses require and how different it is as well. You know, there's not such a thing as a para horse, but the differences between the grades and how one horse might suit one rider well or another rider well. Um, So a solution to many of these, as I touched on slightly then, lies in a much closer relationship between able-bodied and para sport, where you're having those marketplaces kind of crossing over. And a really big point I think to get across is that British Equestrian is really open to hearing from from sellers, from owners who who perhaps just want to know a little bit more about um, the qualities needed in para horses. If they have one that they are thinking perhaps he could make a para horse, um, they are really open to having those conversations to help educate people um, and hopefully match match up. You know, we've got rider talent, horsepower talent, match those up um, as we as we look ahead towards Paris and beyond. Super. Thank you so much for that, Lucy, and thank you for joining us. Throughout the year, Horse and Hound sends reporters out to all the biggest events in the equestrian calendar to cover the action for our weekly magazine and our website at horseandhound.co.uk. The coverage we bring you on these two platforms is different. The weekly magazine provides your comprehensive curated roundup, We reflect back on the big wins and analyse all the results with insight from our team and experts in the industry. Meanwhile, on our website, we bring you the news as it happens. 
We speak to the riders as they leave the arena and report their thoughts in lightning quick time, covering all the biggest stories as they unfold and often producing 10 or more stories every day online from a big show. The first five articles you read on our website are free each month and beyond that you need to buy a subscription. The cost of this reflects the fact that we need a bigger team at events when we are creating extra articles on our website and not only producing a magazine report. To buy a Horse and Hound website subscription, visit horseandhound.co.uk and click subscribe or for great value, in the same place you can buy a combined magazine and website subscription. We know that magazine subscribers are our most loyal audience and we really value your ongoing and vital contribution to our business. Therefore, if you are already a magazine subscriber, the cost to upgrade your subscription to include full website access is minimal. Call 0330-333-1313 to find out more. Dr Gemma Pearson is Director of Equine Behaviour for the Horse Trust. She is a qualified veterinary equine behaviourist who splits her time between seeing clinical behaviour cases at the University of Edinburgh's Equine Hospital and ongoing research on this topic. So on this episode, we're going to look at what an equine behaviourist is and what they can do for you. Obviously, this is a more recent profession that's developed, a little bit the same way that many years ago, there was lots of people doing equine dentistry, and now we have um, accredited equine dental technicians. So equine behaviourists are registered under the Animal Behaviour and Training Council, and you can find one on their website. And of course, there's a big crossover between being an equine behaviourist and training in horses. So certain aspects may come under a riding instructor, but sometimes the problems don't seem to be resolving very easily. And that's where we may need to get an equine behaviourist involved. Or it may be something that's occurring outside of the ridden or handling context. So, for example, when the horse is in the field. We always have to do this on referral from your veterinary surgeon. Um, we always work as a team, exactly the same as a physiotherapist would do. And really the aim for an equine behaviourist is to understand what motivates the behaviour that the horse is performing and then to understand what is reinforcing it. From there, we can make a differential diagnosis in exactly the same way that a vet would do. And then we can start to treat the unwanted behaviours. So people often think of, you know, unwanted behaviours as things like stereotypies, like wind sucking and cribbing. But actually, we would see a wide range of horses. So for myself, um, common things would be things like horses that don't enjoy loading into trailers, unwanted ridden behaviours, which we'll talk about in future episodes, horses that can be difficult to lead, or those that have separation anxiety um, and just generalised anxiety about life. All those that have very specific phobias. So things like being needle shy or vet shy or being fearful of being clipped. Now, obviously, to understand equine behaviour, you all have to have a strong understanding of how horses learn. And I think one of the things that's really important to remember is that horses are all individuals. So I'm just going to explain now the most basic form of learning. We call this non-associative learning. And this is where a horse learns to either react to a stimulus, becomes sensitised, or learns not to react to them, to become desensitised, or we call it habituation as a behaviourist term. Now, we all think this is really simple. You know, if something is harmful or painful, then the horse will become more sensitive. If something is an innocuous stimulus, then you'd expect the horse to get used to it, to habituate. So I will often say to people, if you walk your horse down the road, past the wheelie bins every day, the wheelie bins don't move, they don't harm the horse, should the horse habituate or become sensitised? And everyone's happy to say that the horse should habituate to that scenario. 
And that's where it becomes a challenge because it's all about the horse's individual perception. It's not about whether it actually causes harm or not. So as a consequence of this, we need to think about it from an individual horse's perception. And maybe another way to describe this is to think about people that are scared of spiders. So people say, well, you know, if something doesn't harm me, then you get used to it. If the horse walks past the wheelie bins, it doesn't harm them. The horse will get used to the wheelie bins. But how many people do you know that are fearful of spiders that have been exposed to spiders time after time after time, and yet they don't become less fearful of them? In opposite, a lot of people become more fearful over time. And that's because it's activating the fear center in your brain that we call the amygdala. And this means that every time you see a spider, it triggers that fear response. Your body goes into a fight or flight reaction. It prepares itself with hormones like adrenaline and cortisol. And then you either jump on the sofa or you hit the spider or you scream at someone else to remove it. So every time you practice that, you become more fearful. So my take on message would be, you know, if a horse is fearful of something, then don't assume that's because they're being difficult. You can actually think that it's just because they, you know, they have a fear of it for whatever reason, rational or not. I personally can't understand why people would be scared of spiders. Um, and then we just need to help them become less fearful. And we'll talk about that next time. Thank you, Gemma. Next week, Gemma will be back to talk about classic conditioning in horses. And our interview will be with the recent world team silver medalist and four-time Olympian, Richard Davison. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast, supported by Horse First. See you next week. The Horse and Hound podcast is a Media Cage production.